you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Revelation chapter 3, please. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 13 this morning. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our study of the seven churches that are found in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Uh, we have studied five of these so far uh, to, to date, and today we're studying number six, which is the church that is found in Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia was a prosperous city. Uh, it was roughly 25 miles southeast of Sardis. If you look at the map up here, we're still working our way around this horseshoe. All right, so we're right here down close to the middle of the map there. Uh, and one of the primary reasons that Philadelphia was so prosperous was that there was a highway that ran directly from Smyrna to Philadelphia. So if you see over here, you've got Smyrna over here on the coast. And there was a highway that would run directly from Smyrna all the way over to Philadelphia. And so obviously that means that they're going to have uh, greater access to trade. The stuff that would come in on the boat would get on the highway and it would make its way straight to uh, Philadelphia. And it's about 100 miles from Smyrna to Philadelphia. And from there, there was a direct northwest route into the rest of Asia. And so this was a huge trade route uh, that led back and forth from Asia uh, to this area. Uh, and in 17 AD, there was an earthquake that absolutely destroyed Philadelphia. And it also destroyed uh, 10 other surrounding cities. So this, this was a massive earthquake that happened in this area. And the destruction led Emperor Tiberius to come in and rebuild this entire city. And because of that, there's a great deal of gratitude that the people of Philadelphia had. And so from there on out, this city was especially loyal to Rome. And due to that loyalty to Rome, Philadelphia was referred to as the gateway to the east because this city was specifically used to sort of be a missionary of Greek culture into uh, the Asian provinces around there. Uh, in the midst of this important city, though, we find a small but vibrant church that stood its ground against the Greek culture that was surrounding it. Uh, it stood so strong that among all of the churches that we see Jesus speaking to in these first two chapters of, or second, third chapter of Revelation, this is the second that receives no rebuke whatsoever. And so they're pushing back against their culture. They're standing strong in the gospel. They're professing their faith uh, consistently and constantly amidst everything that's going on there. And so because of that, this is one of two churches that receives no rebuke from Jesus. So we're going to take a look at that, verses 7 to 13. But before we do that, I want to pray uh, as we get into the Word. Father, we're grateful for your Word. We're grateful for the promises that it gives us. We're grateful for the fact that it shows us your will for our lives and how to live in a way that brings you honor and glory. And I pray that this morning our hearts are desiring to be more like Jesus and that we would listen to what you have to say and that we would emulate all that was going on here at this wonderful church in Philadelphia. Well, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13 begins, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. 
Thus says the Holy One, the True One, the One that has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one, will, no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so here again in the sixth church, we also see the, the constant authoritative opening of Jesus. He's constantly giving the church that he's speaking to a reason for why they should pay attention to what he is saying. And he gives more here than he has given in the previous churches. Uh, he gives three reasons why they should be paying attention to what he has to say. It starts off with he is the Holy One. Right? The, the idea of being holy has two connotations that we need to consider when we think about God. The first is that God is perfectly pure. He is completely undefiled and completely incapable of sin. God cannot sin because sin means going against the nature and character of God. It is His nature that creates the laws that we are to follow in order to bring Him honor and glory. And God cannot go against His nature. And because of that, He defines what is good. And it is constantly good for all of eternity. And because of His nature, He also, the opposite of what is good is bad. And so, therefore, what is against His nature is sinful. It goes against God's nature and His character. And so there is zero imperfection in God. There is zero imperfection. And this is why... Sin matters so much. This is why there's no such thing as a small sin. There's no such thing as an inconsequential sin. right? And this is also the reason why the punishment for sin is so severe. It's because of the nature and character of who we are sinning against when we sin. Now, I heard a great story by a pastor named David Platt. He currently pastors a church in Washington, D.C. He was somewhere, I think, in India, and he was having a conversation with his taxi driver about sin and the consequences of sin. And the taxi driver thought that the consequences for sin was a little severe. Right? So you mean to tell me if I break God's law, I get condemned to a wrathful existence for all of eternity? That seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? And he goes, well... It all depends on the nature of the one that you sin against. He said, what would you do if I slapped you in the face right now? He goes, oh, I would kick you out of my cab and possibly call the police. And he said, well, what if when the police got here, I slapped them in the face too? He said, oh, well, you would definitely take a beating and you might die. And they're going to throw you in jail and you're going to go before the judge. He goes, well, what if I go before the judge and I smack him? He goes, you're definitely going to jail for a long, long time, 
And he goes, well, let's, let's take this even bigger. What about your king? What if somehow or another I stood before your king and I smacked him in the face? He goes, oh, you would definitely die. You would be executed on the spot. And he goes, do you see the nature of how the person that I have offended with my sin, the consequences of that gets greater and greater and greater. And he goes, now think about you going up and slapping the face of a holy, perfect, righteous God. What happens then? Well, then you're condemned for eternity because of the nature of the one that you have offended. Because of the one that you have slapped in the face with your rebellion, you have then condemned yourself to an eternity separated from God. So there's never a time when we will ever be able to say it was just a little lie. There was never a time when we can say it was just a little theft. There's never a time when we can say it was just a little lust. There's never a time when we can say that it was just a little unrighteous anger. Right? It's just a little selfishness. There is no such thing as little when it comes to sin in the eyes of God. He does not use the word just or little when it comes to our sin. And the reason for that is because He is perfectly pure. Every sin is a big sin to a holy and righteous God. And the second aspect of God's holiness that we need to consider is that God is completely set apart. When we think of God's holiness, we need to remember that God is not like us. Right? Yes, we are created in His image, but that only goes so far. Right? If I showed you a picture of me, yes, it looks like me, but it's not the same as me. I am significantly different than my picture. Or maybe consider how a child can look like a parent. They may even act like a parent, but it's completely different because they are separate. And God, like us, or not like us, is completely separate from who we are. Right? God is separate from us in ways that we will never fully comprehend. Right? We always think, well, I'm going to ask God this question and then I'll understand when we get to heaven. That's not necessarily true. It says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Like We don't all of a sudden become capable of understanding the mind of God simply because we have come into our perfected bodies. Like God is completely other than us. He is completely set apart, and we will have eternity to try to get to the end of the mind of God, but we will never arrive there. That's one of the reasons why eternity will never get boring, right? because we will constantly find new ways to worship and praise God. We will find new things about His nature and character that will, we will want to exclaim it to the world. And so, you know, when... Amazing Grace says, when we've been there a thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. So we can, we can sing God's praises for 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, because we will never get to the end of the awesomeness that is God. And that is because He is separate from us. He also says here that He is the true one. All right, this, again, is a testimony to the character of God. He is completely and 100% wholly trustworthy and reliable in His words and in His actions. So when you are this small church that is constantly facing persecution, it's, 
It's important that they remember that the promises of God will never fail. Everything that He says is true. And it will come true. And often that is the only thing that people in persecution have to hold on to are the promises of God. Now imagine if God were fickle. Imagine if His temperament and His mind changed constantly. Yes, I made that promise yesterday, but I'm not feeling it today. I said I would be there for you if you would just stand up to these people for me, but now I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to do that anymore. Imagine how difficult it would be to find any peace, to find any comfort. In, I mean, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. Right? But God is completely unmoving and unchanging. Completely and utterly true. And because of that, what He said at the beginning in Genesis is still just as true as it is today because He doesn't change. Everything that God has said is true and will be true. And the last thing that He says about Himself in verse 7 is that He is the one who has the key of David. Now what does that mean? What does David holding a key have anything to do with who God is? Well, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And this is referring again to the sovereignty of God. Right In Isaiah 22, there's a prophecy about a servant named Eliakim. And that prophecy, as we talked about when we went through our study of prophecy, it has a double meaning. All right? First of all, it's talking about Eliakim. And it says in verse 21 and 22, I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. I will hand your authority over to him and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. And so there is a reality where this servant Eliakim is the person that God is referring to here, but it's also referring to the Davidic Messiah that will come at some point in time and he will have complete authority over the gates of heaven and hell. And what he opens, when he opens the door to heaven, there is no one that can stop him from allowing people to go into heaven. And when he closes the gates to heaven, no one can force them open. He is the one who has the key. And He is sovereign over that key. And He can do with that key what He wants. And there is no one that can oppose Him when He has made up His mind to do something with it. And so this is who Jesus says that He is. And so He says, when you hear Me say these things, you better pay attention. And the good thing about this church is that everything that they have to pay attention to is commendation from the Lord. Everything that Jesus has to say to them is up and to the right. He is happy with this church. So what are they doing well? Well, we find this out in verses 8 and 10. Jesus again tells this church, He says, I know your works. This is the second or third church that He said this very specifically to. Uh, and we must be mindful of that when we have faith, that it's going to be an active faith. Right, we can't say that we have faith in Jesus and then find ourselves to be lazy Christians. Because when we have faith, proper faith and understanding of God is always going to lead to action. And so he's commending this church for their action. Your faith has moved you to do something for the kingdom of God, and God notices that, and he commends them for it. 
It says there that they have kept His Word. Why is this important? Well, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says all Scripture is inspired by God. Some of your translations will say breathed out by God. So all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what this means is that the Bible that we have states it's the very words of God, and therefore, if we live by what we find in Scripture, we're going to be living according to the will of God. Right? There's so many people that are like, I just want to know God's will for my life. He gave you 66 books of His will for your life. If you're looking for God's will for your life, open the book and read it, and He will tell you exactly what He wants. And if you're having trouble narrowing it down, there's two things very specifically that He talks about, which are the greatest commands in Scripture, which are found in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. In Matthew 22, 37 and 38, he says to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. All right, so they're keeping God's word. Right? And loving God is pretty uniform throughout all of scripture as the greatest commandment you love him first you love him by putting him first in your lives right what's the first commandment that we have in exodus 20 verse 3 it says you shall have no other gods other than me and we might think in our minds like i don't go out i don't go to you know buddhist temples i don't go to mosques i don't worship these other gods but anytime you put something that above god in your life you are worshiping that thing. What do you run to when things get hard? What do you run to when you're tired? What do you run to when you're looking for an escape of some kind? If you run to anything other than God, then you are worshiping something else. If you want to know what you worship, time, talent, and treasure, what do you spend your time doing? Where do you spend your money? What makes, gets the, most, the biggest impact on your calendar? All of these things will reveal what you worship and our our call is to worship god above all things we love him through our worship right we love him by controlling our impulses and our thoughts we have a constant pull away from the holy righteous nature of god we want to do things our way we want to do things that we deem as good for us and yet god has provided the truth in Scripture about how we are to think about these things. And when we see ourselves going away from that, we need to put the brakes on. We need to control those thoughts. We need to control those actions. And in doing that, we will prove that we love God above other things. Jesus says in chapter 14 of John, verse 15, says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love God, if you truly love God, then you will do what God has called you to do. That love for God will lead you into action, and that action will get commendation from Jesus. The second thing that they did that they get commendations for is that they have not denied the name of Jesus. 
It appears that the church here in Philadelphia is at the very least being oppressed by Jews uh, that Jesus says come from the synagogue of Satan. And so I don't know how bad you have to be to be referred to as coming from the synagogue of Satan, but it's not a good thing. And these people are being oppressed. Jesus says that they're, they claim to be Jews, but they're not. They're lying. And then on top of that, they're living in a polytheistic culture because of the Roman roots that are there. Right? Romans worship many, many gods. We've talked about several of the temples that were in some of those surrounding cities. There would have been temples here in Philadelphia as well. And having that gateway to the east, uh, it makes you think that they probably had Asian culture working its way in as the Greek culture is making its way out. And so now you have a melting pot of opportunity for these people in this small church that has very little power to deny Jesus. Right? We saw that... You know, some of these churches, because of the persecution that they were facing, they decided to go with the way of the culture. And they got a harsh rebuke from Jesus. But here, Jesus is saying, you have not denied my name. No matter what it would cost for them to profess the name of Jesus, they deemed it worth it. No matter what I have to go through, Jesus is worth more than that. No matter what I have to go through, the, the, necess- the, the fact that it is necessary to share the gospel with all who are lost, dying, and going to hell is worth whatever might come my way because of that proclamation of my faith. So there's a great deal of temptation for these people to deny Christ, and yet they have not. Number three... It says that they have endured. They have not given in to the temptation to follow their culture. They have not given in due to the persecution of the Jews. They have stood fast in their faith. And because of that, they have these rewards to look forward to. These are the promises that Jesus has given them. Number one, they will have an open door that no one can close. This means that the gospel will go forth from this place and no one will be able to stop it. I mean, it doesn't matter how adamant the government comes against that church. It doesn't matter how adamantly the Jews come against that church because they have been faithful, because they have kept God's word, because they have not denied the name of Jesus, because they continually endure it. It means that Jesus has opened that door. He has the key to that door and it will remain open and no one can close it. And this is an amazing concept. When we go back to the beginning where I introduced Philadelphia as the gateway to the east. Right? So not only is it a gateway for Greek culture, the church there also has access to several different cultures and people groups that they don't even have to leave their city for. When we think about taking, taking the gospel to the nations, you know, we have to think about, well, how would we do that? Well, when you live in a city like this that has a doorway going both ways into the world, it's, it's open access to many different cultures. And Jesus says that door will remain open because you have been faithful. Second thing he says is that those who persecute them will bow at their feet and those people will know that Jesus loves them. 
Right? Jesus loves His people. Right? If you are in here today and you are a follower of Christ, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you and He is faithful to you. And He was also faithful to them. He does not take kindly to those who persecute His brothers and sisters. Right? So one day, there is going to be a massively harsh wake-up call for all those who have opposed God and opposed God's people. And then one day, all of these people who have opposed God will kneel before God whether they want to or not. Like, we often think, well, if God's going to be that way, I refuse to worship Him. No, you will kneel before God someday. You can either do that in worship or you can do that because He has made you. But someday there will be bowing of the head and the kneeling uh, that will one day take place before God. And so this is what Jesus has in mind when He tells people that you need to endure. One day these people will kneel before you in the same way that they kneel before Jesus. So because of this, because of this promise that all things will be made right someday, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Jesus says, walk the extra mile. Jesus says to do more than what has been asked of you and do not strive for your own vindication. Do you have any idea how hard that is for me to hear? I am vindictive by nature. right? I, we all struggle with our own different sin struggles. Vindictiveness is a big one for me. Right? You come at me, I'm coming at you harder and faster so that you don't make the mistake of ever doing that again. Like This is what I am battling on a daily basis, right? especially in my house with all five of my kids. I'm getting even. Kelly's like, you know he's two, right? I'm like, two-year-old's going to learn. <laughs> now, I say that in jest, obviously, but there are people who are coming to oppress those who are faithful in their worship of Jesus. And Jesus says that one day He will vindicate all of us as we stand firm in our proclamation of the Gospel, in our worship of His name. He says that one day these people will bow down before you. And this is the promise that He gives to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, third, He says that they will be kept from the hour of testing that is coming for the whole world. And now this is a highly disputed verse. So let me go ahead and say that up front. There are many ideas uh, out there about the proper interpretation, and most of it revolves around whatever the scholar believes about the, their eschatology, the end times. How that plays out in their mind determines how they interpret this verse. And so that means that People think differently about this promise depending on whether they believe in the pre-trib uh, rapture of the church, a mid-trib rapture of the church, or a post-trib rapture of the church. And we, we see, if you read through the rest of the book of Revelation, uh, that the phrasing that's listed here is repeated several times in Revelation. And in every instance, uh, the judgment that's coming that they're being uh, protected from is constantly referencing unbelievers exclusively as they face God's judgment and God's wrath. Right? So one way to see this 
passage is to understand that the believers in Philadelphia have been so faithful and enduring enduring hardship up to this point that they will be spared from the ultimate test that comes in the form of tribulation and the great tribulation period uh, via a pre-trib rapture of the church so that before all this bad stuff that's going to come to the entire world happens the church is taken up and there is no church there to experience that hardship Right, so they're bodily spared from all the horrors of the tribulation period, and that tribulation will fall solely on unbelievers. Right, another way to look at this, depending on your thoughts about the second coming of Christ, is not to consider this as a promise of bodily protection from suffering, but a spiritual protection from God's eternal wrath. Right, so everyone endures the hardship of the tribulation physically, Right? So the people that are mid-trib and post-trib, if you're mid-trib, you'll experience some of this. If you're post-trib, you'll experience all of it. And so, But the believers in Philadelphia, as well as all over the rest of the world, will, will be protected from the eternal consequences of these horrors. Right? This is God's judgment on unbelievers. This view believes that the church will be present as all of this hardship happens, as uh, the end times uh, chaos runs rampant all over the earth, but no matter what happens, the believers in Christ have been eternally sealed by the Holy Spirit due to their faith in Christ, and so therefore their souls are spared from etern eternal torment even if their body is not. Even if their body has to endure all of the tribulation that is coming, their souls will be spared. And so one thing that is to be clear about this issue is that it is not a central gospel issue. And so, you know, when we have conversations about the end times, we don't need to, to get out the pitchforks and the, and the torches, right? People are allowed to see this and think differently than we do because this is not a central tenet of the faith. The only thing that we need to remember for certain about the end times is that Christ is coming back and there will be a judgment. Of that, we are certain. You cannot not believe that and still be a Christian. But no matter how you feel about the tribulation, the rapture, none of that stuff is a central doctrine in the Christian faith. We can believe differently about this and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we should always hold to things about the end times uh, with no arrogance. And I mean, if you find yourself absolutely certain, you are, you're doing better than I am. Because I am not completely certain about how that's all going to, to play out. You know, you've got your uh, premillennialist, your mid-millennialist, your post-millennialist, and I tell everybody that I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. I don't know. Don't know how it's going to go, but it's good, you know, it'll work itself out. Um, so uh, that's the number three. Number four, the last thing that Jesus says here, uh, or I'm sorry, the second to last thing, they will be made a pillar in the temple of God, and they will never have to go out again. Now, there's a reason why I give you the, the information about the cities beforehand because each one of these letters that is written has something written to the people there that they would relate well to. And this promise to be made a pillar in the temple of God that they will never have to go out again is a significant promise to the people in Philadelphia because if you live in an area that is prone to earthquakes, you're looking for stability. You're, you're desiring something that is not going to shake, is not going to come crumbling down uh, every time the earth starts to rattle. And you're going to have, you know, these people would have to evacuate the city whenever these earthquakes started 
And so here, uh, often after one of these earthquakes, the only thing that would be left standing would be these giant stone pillars that were part of the temples. Everything else would have been shaken to the ground except for these massive uh, pillars. And so to be made into a pillar in the temple of God, it assures these believers that they were in a position of absolute and complete security. You don't have anything to fear. If you stay firm in your faith, if you endure to the end, there is nothing in this life that can shake you loose from God. We talked about Romans 8. We, I, I, I just wanted to spare you from it because I love it so much I could quote it every single week. But there's nothing that can remove you from the hand of, of God. There's no trial or tribulation that can, can shake you loose. And he's saying here that as the pillar of the temple that nothing would be able to separate you from your Savior. That's a great promise to people who are used to their world rocking and rolling on a regular basis because, because of earthquakes. And lastly, he promises that God's name and the name of the city and his new name would be written on them. So we have three times Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia a new name of blessing and honor. First, they receive the name of God. Then they receive the name of God's city, the New Jerusalem, which if you read through Revelation, you see that this is a place and a people. Right? It's, it's the, the people of God are the New Jerusalem. And it is also a place. And lastly, uh, it says there that they receive Jesus' new name, meaning that they identify with Jesus' character, His ownership, right? He is their Lord and His recognition. And so each one of them will be able to say, I belong to the Father. His name is written on me. Right? Heaven is my home. Right? My name is on the lease. And Jesus is my Lord. So this is the final promise that Jesus gives to this church in Philadelphia. So how do we apply what Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia? Well, I mean, I think it's fairly clear that we should do what he commends. Right? So first off, we should, we should follow God's Word. Right? You can't follow God's Word if you don't know God's Word. So if we're going to keep Jesus' Word, we have to have a proper understanding of what He has revealed about Himself, and we cannot do that if we are not in the Word of God. Now, we cannot possibly know God's will for our life if we spend our time watching Netflix or scrolling through Facebook or whatever else your thing is, whatever takes your time, talent, and treasure. Right? If part of that does not involve you pursuing after knowledge of the Lord in His Scripture, then we are not going to be able to endure the way that we are supposed to endure. Right? How, how do we conform ourselves to the life of Christ if we don't know how to do that? And we're only going to know how to do that by knowing God's Word. Number two, do not deny the name of Jesus. Right, we are meant to proclaim the name of Christ, not deny it. Now, we're not in a place where we receive a ton of persecution, but I think that might be on its way. I believe that in the next 50 years or so, we may not have the freedom to, to meet in a building like this like we have in the past. We may be underground struggling to... to like a secret church type situation like the believers in China or in some of the Middle Eastern countries. 
right? But in, in all of that, no matter what hardship we find ourselves in, no matter what persecution uh, we find ourselves in, we must not deny the name of Jesus. For sure, if we do deny that, if we don't acknowledge Christ as our Savior, our life is easier. Right? That was what happened to, to the last church. That They didn't push back against their culture at all, and because of that, there was nothing good to say about them. And there was no persecution. The reason why there was no persecution is there was nothing to persecute. If we look just like the world, why would they persecute us? We're just one of them. And so we must be faithful not to deny the name of Jesus. Number three, we must endure hardship. Right? I don't know what everyone's life looks like in here. There are different degrees of difficulty in it. Some have coasted through with not nary a problem. The only people you've buried are you know, your grandparents in the right order. And you, know, you bury your parents as you get older. And, but you, know, you don't struggle with losing jobs, losing houses, losing loved ones. Uh, in what appears to be out of order. Uh, but all of us face hardship of one kind or another, or we will eventually. I've, I've said numerous times that there's, you're in one of three places. You're either going into the storm, you're in the storm, or you're coming out of the storm and should be preparing for the next storm. Uh, we have, that's just the nature of our life. We have promises of a, of a glorious future where this will not be the case. But there will be many hardships in this life. And it may tempt us when we are facing these hardships to question whether God loves us. Is it true? Is what we find in Scripture actually true? Is God all-powerful? Does He love me? And the answer is yes. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, yes. It is all true. And God does love you. And don't think that you're going to get the answer to the question why when you get to heaven. Finally, God will explain himself. Not necessarily. Because I guarantee you, when you get to heaven, you'll no longer care. What will it matter when you're face to face with God? What will the 60, 70, 80 years of struggle in this life matter when you face Jesus for eternity? But we must endure. We must stand strong. No matter what comes our way, we must cling to the truth that God loves us, that He is powerful, that he will, he will keep us forever and ever and ever. And lastly, if you're here today and you're not a believer, like these promises are not for you. They can be. But right now, if you're in here today and you have not professed faith in Jesus, if you stand condemned in your own sin, these promises will not be yours. What you stand to face is eternity separated from God forever in a place called hell, a place of torment and anguish that will never end. But that doesn't have to be you. That doesn't have to be the promise that you're holding on to. You can take the promise of Christ that says if you will profess His name and make Him the Lord of your life and renounce your sin, repent of it, and turn away from it, then you can have eternal life in Christ. That is offered to you here today. And if that's something that any of you need to speak about today, I'd love to do that after the service. So please come up and talk to me. Um, but let's pray together and think about what I have said today. Well, we love you. I'm grateful for the promises that you've given us. And I pray that we can cling to those promises the same way the church in Philadelphia did. That we would 
follow your commands, that we would not deny you, that we would endure as we face hardship and struggle. And Lord, if there's any here today that don't know you, I pray that we would have uh, a moment of clarity as the Holy Spirit does work in their heart, that there would be a desperate realization of their need for salvation in Christ. And Lord, that we would be able to rejoice in, in seeing uh, a sinner come home. So I ask all of this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.